Belarus and Navalny are very much hogging the news. But honestly, I wanted to talk about something else. I'm actually going to be talking about the National Guard, and after the break, the European Union. But, as Lenin is meant to have said, everything connects to everything else, and it transpires that I'm still not wholly going to be able to get away from the news cycle. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. So, I was contemplating topics and, as I said, really wanting to avoid essentially recycling things I'd already said about Navalny, about Belarus, and so forth. With the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, one of the compelling hypotheses is that he was targeted not by the government, but by someone with a personal grudge, a dubious record, and a Kremlin krisha, a roof or protection. Someone, for example, as, as people have suggested, like Yevgeny Prigozhin, generally known by the irritating sobriquet of Putin's chef. Irritating because it's not true. Yes, Putin did frequent his restaurant in St. Petersburg, but Prigozhin was always a businessman, not a cook. This is a man whose business career has been based on doing whatever the Kremlin needed doing, from providing catering services to the military, through setting up the infamous internet troll farm to managing the Wagner mercenary formation. He's also an ex-con with a reputation for, shall we say, poor impulse control, and a definite beef with Navalny. He made a strong bid, after all, for real villain status, and I don't mean Bond movie villain so much as Disney Christmas blockbuster villain. By, while Navalny was in an induced coma on a ventilator, buying up a debt that his anti-corruption foundation owed with the avowed intent of bankrupting them. Classy. But still, never a chef. But then again, Prigozhin is notoriously litigious, and I remember being warned off investigating him by a Russian who knows what he's what. And you have to remember, I worked on, on gangsters and spooks, but he said to me, Prigozhin... Prigozhin doesn't recognise the rules, he doesn't have restraints. So, I think not Prigozhin. But that did get me thinking about another personal enemy of Navalny's, albeit one I don't think for a minute was involved in his poisoning. National Guard Commander Viktor Zolotov. The former Putin bodyguard, aficionado of unfeasibly large hats. Why why did the Soviets favour officers' caps that really could double as flying saucers? And why do so many countries like Russia and Belarus still use them? That's another matter. Anyway, Zolotov notoriously challenged Navalny to a duel in 2018, threatening to make mincemeat out of him. Hence, that got me thinking that I would instead look at the National Guard, and often... I think, frankly, uh, misunderstood, even if often referenced, uh, structure. 
Um, and above all, not so much to delve into the minutiae, which unit is where or anything like that, but to look about how its formation, its operation and its empire building can tell us something about wider processes of Russian politics. Of course, then Putin, in an otherwise frankly very anodyne TV interview, says that at Lukashenko's request, he had formed a, quote, reserve of law enforcement officers, unquote, who could be deployed to Belarus, and which, let's be honest, would likely be based very heavily on the National Guard. So it looks like I haven't managed wholly to escape Belarus either. Ah, so be it. In 2015 to 2016, the police were beginning to become increasingly uncomfortable about their use as stormtroopers of the state. For a new generation of officers, after all, it wasn't why they had joined up. And it also ran counter to a serious drive to try and improve the relationship between the police and the community. After all, this doesn't just make a copper feel warm and fuzzy. It makes their work a great deal more effective. Since 2012, the Interior Minister had been Vladimir Kolokotsev, a career police officer. Now, that might not sound like it's a big deal, but his predecessor, the deeply, deeply unpopular Rashid Nurgaliev, had been appointed across from the FSB, the Federal Security Service, having previously served in the KGB. And that was a point of considerable displeasure for a lot of police. Now, the MVD, the Ministry of Internal Affairs, is operationally important but politically weak. The military has a lot more muscle. The FSB has vastly more political pull. Kolokoltsev is a technocrat. He's part of the sort of below-stairs cast, a crew of managers and so forth, certainly not part of Putin's circle of cronies and confidants. Nevertheless, the concerns of his rank and file, and indeed of his regional commanders, was filtering up to him. And it was also visible in a subtle shift in the tone in such page-turners as the police newspaper Shit i Miech, Shield and Sword, and the magazine Palizia Rassi, which, you know, let's be honest, these are still written in astonishingly Soviet-style prose. But nonetheless, reading between the lines, one could see at this time that they were more and more often flagging up concerns exactly about essentially wasting, squandering what had been some real progress in reconnecting with society. So Kolokoltsev delicately began conveying these concerns up the political hierarchy. The hope was clearly that there would be a change in policy. And there was a change in policy, just not quite in the way he probably had hoped. In April 2016, there came a bombshell. All of the MVD's public order and internal security forces were being transferred to a wholly new agency, the National Guard, Roskvardia. In its head was going to be Viktor Zolotov, former head of the Presidential Security Service, a judo-sparring partner of Putin's, and a man with the reputation of being, shall we say, untroubled by excessive delicacy and also by excessive self-awareness. A possibly apocryphal story comes from Russian defector Sergei Tretyakov. And that was that uh, Zolotov and his former boss, ex-head of the Federal Guard Service, Yevgeny Murov, were once brainstorming all the people they'd have to have eliminated to ensure Putin's supremacy. And eventually Zolotov sadly concluded, it's too many to kill, even for us. Well, 
maybe, maybe not, but certainly this is the man that Putin chose to head his new Praetorian Guard. Now, sometimes you'll hear it said that the Roskvardia numbers more than 400,000 personnel. That's technically true, but misleading. There are actually maybe 220 to 240,000 security personnel. There's the Amon Riot Police. There's the small Sobr, some kind of special weapons and tactics SWAT police teams. And then there's the largest force, which is the interior troops, which is a militarized security force, a virtual parallel army, frankly. Albeit most of them are essentially static security units, generally guarding everything from prisons to scientific installations. Even so, there are up to 100,000 that are operational, which in other words means that they can be moved around. Now that's a lot of people. Pretty formidable force of potential leg breakers. But rather than descend too much into sort of nerdish detail about them, what I want to do is to highlight three ways that Roskvardia's place in the system illuminates some specific aspects of Russian politics. First of all, and this is the, the briefest and most obvious one, it is that Putin feels the need to have a public order army. Creating the National Guard didn't create new forces, as they had all been in the Interior Ministry beforehand, but now they were separated from the beat cops, and above all, they were under a trusted henchman of his own. This is, after all, something that had been discussed time and time again, even going back to the 1990s. And each time in the past, the idea had been rejected as being too disruptive, too unnecessary. Somehow, for whatever reason, and I think we know the reason, the sense of increasing pressure from the streets, this time Putin wanted it. And it's quite a force. Now, Lukashenko's Belarus, yeah, you see, we can't get away from it, has about 10,000 riot police and security troops and a population of around 9.5 million. That's one heavy for 950 head of population. Putin has, let's say, 230,000, and Russia has a population of 144.5 million. That's one heavy per 660 head of population. So more than half again as dense, if the Amon will excuse me saying this, as dense a security force as Belarus. Now, you maintain these, you pay for these, because you feel you might need them. The second point, if Putin's not your mate, you need to keep hustling. The boss clearly trusts Zolotov, but although he was his chief bodyguard for years, there isn't, as near as I can tell, a personal friendship. You don't see Zolotov hiking with Putin like FSB chief Bortnikov, out hunting like Defence Minister Shoigu, or even off-skiing, like Medvedev. He's a retainer, not a crony. And this means he has to keep demonstrating his utility to the boss. Need to find something for escapees from former Ukrainian President Yanukovych's security forces to do? No problem, they can be found positions in the National Guard. Need a face-saving way of justifying why Chechen strongman, leader, president, whatever, Kadyrov has his own private army. Call them National Guardsmen. Zolotov won't mind. And nowadays, need a force which could go into Belarus? Well, odds are the National Guard is up for the job. Zolotov, the thug that likes to say yes. The thug that has to say yes, because otherwise he'll be in trouble. Because at this level, all politics in Russia is personal. 
Zolotov and the National Guard are involved in a constant political campaign, a campaign to win over a constituency of one. Because after all, Zolotov certainly has enemies. The FSB mistrusts his attempts to empire build on their turf. Kolokoltsev resents the way the National Guard was built out of MVD assets. Investigative Committee Chair Bastrykin sees Zolotov as a rival, and generally a relatively educated elite looks down its nose at the uncouth ex-steel worker with no degree, no cultural pretensions, no desire to become one of them. There is a class dimension here, I suppose. Zolotov has tried some empire building, which has inevitably led to conflicts with other agencies. He launched a bid to set up his own investigations branch, parking his tanks on the FSB and Investigation Committee's lawn, and even wanted to take over the Interior Ministry's anti-extremism units. None of them succeeded. Why? Because the boss is fine with the status quo. He likes Zolotov being hungry, edgy and eager. I hear, for example, that Shoigu, Defence Minister, presumably confident of his relationship with Putin, has signalled that he would be very, very reluctant to see the military sent into Belarus. Zolotov, though? If the order comes, I doubt he would hesitate long enough to say disastrous mistake, because he can't fail to keep having to woo the boss. Then the third broad point. Power is currency in Russia. The Renaissance Italian scholar-diplomat Machiavelli, I'm a great fan, once said, gold will not always get you good soldiers, but good soldiers will always get you gold. In other words, a prince may be rich, but then squander that money on the wrong forces, the wrong captain, the wrong weapons. But in an age of mercenarying and plunder, good troops could always be monetized. Now, the Russian equivalent is that money can't always buy you power, but power can always get you money. And I'm not just talking about the personal wealth of the mighty, although it is certainly the case that no one suffers from that Georgian curse, may you live on your wages alone. It's also about institutions. If you recall, I said that some put the size of the National Guard at well over 400,000, but actually its core forces number maybe 220, 230,000 plus. Why the discrepancy? The answer is FGUP, Federal State Unitary Enterprise, Akhrana, Guard. This was the Interior Ministry's commercial arm, providing private security to thousands of customers from court buildings to housing estates. It made the NVD a useful little profit, but when the National Guard was formed, it was also given FGOP Ochrana. You know what else the National Guard has? Responsibility for licensing and inspecting private security firms. Yes, FGOP Ochrana's business rivals... Mysteriously enough, lots of them have since been running into all kinds of serious regulatory problems. In 2017, for example, FGOP Sviaz Security, a subsidiary of the Communications Ministry, began having lots and lots of problems. These magically went away in 2018 when they became a subsidiary of, surprise, surprise, FGOP Ochrana. And meanwhile, Akhrana's turnover rises 20% in a single year. Now look, unkind souls would regard this as little more than protection racketeering. And they may be right. But the point is that power will be monetized. So there you have it. 
a little snapshot of the National Guard and what its formation says about modern Russian politics. First of all, Putin wanted, four years ago, to be sure he had a large paramilitary security force under a man who would not shrink from using it ruthlessly. When the interior minister and his people looked like they were unreliable, Putin just simply created a new force. Secondly, Zolotov is one of those figures who has no personal support base, but rather lots and lots of enemies. He constantly has to be looking for new ways to please the boss. Like a shark, he must keep swimming or he will drown. Thirdly, whatever may be happening in the Russian economy, the power structure is parasitic, monopolistic, downright extortionistic, if that were a word. FGOP Okhrana is a perfectly decent, efficient service provider. But that's not good enough. If you have the power over a market, you use that to monopolize. And in the process, probably make the industry much less efficient. But who cares? And on that note, time for a break. And afterwards, I'll turn from ruthless power to the source, some would say, of its absolute opposite, the European Union. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Esteemed Patreon backer Callum Christie asked me a series of questions about Russia and the European Union, and especially how the massive common borrowing commitment to deal with COVID, which can be seen as a step towards further, deeper European integration, could affect its foreign security policy, and thus Russia. Well, let me start with a fundamental point. I don't think the Kremlin really believes the European Union exists. Not really. I don't mean to say that they actually haven't noticed it, and they don't know what this blue flag with gold stars might be, but that on a fundamental level, it hits several of their blind spots. First of all, who's in charge? Time and again, both in public pronouncements and also in private conversations, I'm reminded that they don't really believe the European Union as a thing in its own right could genuinely exist. Instead, they see it as an arena, a place where states battle for resources and hegemony. Now, look, I'm not saying that's not part of the EU process. No one's going to claim that Romania has as much clout in it as Germany, for example. But the notion that there could be collective decision-making, that there can be a synergy between national and supranational interest and policy, that just doesn't work for them. It's all ktorkavor. Who beats whom, if I can again quote Lenin and his, one of his immortal formulations. So the European Commission, the institution that ironically Brexiteers and, and other Europhobes consider to be this phenomenally sinister threat to national sovereignty, is, I think, discounted by the Kremlin. To them, this is all a sham. This is all a, a comic-con just waiting to see where its Moscow is. After all, they all know, quote-unquote, that NATO is America's Warsaw Pact. 
there's always got to be nation states that are actually calling the shots behind a facade of there being some kind of supranational structure. Secondly, what power does it actually have? The European Union is an economic hub, but it very much regards its capacity to assert itself in the world as being as a regulatory power the source of a complex web of laws, rules and standards that enmesh much of the rest of the world. And it's true that even the mighty USA has often has had to bow to EU regulatory power. This is obviously important, but I can't help but feel that the idea that this is real power is very much overrated in some circles. In particular, it's part of the sort of self-aggrandizing rhetoric of Eurocrats and their dancing partners. But certainly, at the same time, it is massively underestimated by the Kremlin. This is not power as they see it. They'll gladly take their million-man military and stack it up against the influence of GDPR data protection rules and feel that they come out of the comparison looking pretty good. In foreign policy, the European Union is frankly hopelessly weak, slow and divided. Just look at Libya, where, for example, members are backing different sides in a war. The European Union's External Action Service is arguably the most inappropriately named agency since Orwell's propagandistic Ministry of Truth. The European Union has no army, and sluggish moves in that direction are actually eagerly welcomed in Moscow because of the assumption that they will actually do little to create proper capacity for the EU, but lots to undermine NATO. The European Union, as the EU, not in terms of individual member states, does not really have much of a powerful or rather purposeful aid programme, except towards prospective member states sometimes. Now, I do not want to denigrate the value and strength in providing public goods to the world economy, and also a model of liberal collective action. I've just been trying to give a sense of how the world, or rather EU, looks to the current Kremlin regime. Because this sees none of the characteristics of the EU as genuine signs and sources of power. What do they really think power is constructed of? Will, discipline, military, economic and political strength, that can actually be applied. Speed of action. In those terms, the EU is nowhere, punching so far below its weight that it is more waving than anything else. And the third broad point, where is it going? Now, quite possibly out of wishful thinking, the prevailing Kremlin perspective is that the European Union is an unnatural and inefficient institution that is in deep, deep trouble. The 750 billion euro recovery deal is regarded as a sign of desperation rather than as a step toward greater unity. Brexit and the rise of anti-EU movements in countries such as Italy and Greece, the clashes between Brussels and the authoritarian and populist governments in Hungary and Poland, revelations about industrial-scale corruption and misuse of EU funds, rows between the frugal North and the profligate South, in all of these are eagerly seized upon as proof, proof, of the EU's essential morbidity. I can understand why. In its essentials, the EU represents a conceptual as well as practical political challenge to the current Russian regime. A union that is committed to moving away from zero-sum politics, that represents a powerful alternative model too. I mean, let's be honest, 
If a reformist new government arises in Belarus, it may well be committed to maintaining the country's current geopolitical orientation. But I can guarantee you that the next political generation will be looking to orient itself westwards instead. There is a certain uh, genteel, magnetic, gravitic force to the European Union that on some level the Kremlin understands and fears. Not least because, just as in the late 80s and early 90s, people in the USSR, in its successor states, and East Europe generally, equated capitalism with having full fridges and Levi's for all, rather than unemployment and oligarchy, well, so too, being quote-unquote European will likely mean that the blue flag and freedom and prosperity will be seen as pretty much inextricable. Maybe rightly, maybe not. But the point is that it is important and comforting for the Kremlin and its tame pundits to see the European Union as unmanageable, degenerate, remember, gay roper, and in decline. And in a self-reinforcing cycle, that means they pay much less attention to the institutions of the EU. Individual member states, sure, but not the EU. I'm not an expert on the European Union. I don't know if the Covid recovery plan will prove to be irrelevant in the grand scheme of things, or the making or the breaking of the Union. But I do think that as Covid wanes, coping with the economic impact, including paying for that 750 billion euro package, and recriminations over its inevitable misuse in some quarters, will come to the fore. And this is likely to get into the way of efforts to refocus on foreign policy. Um, and all the hard-edged characteristics that Moscow thinks make up real power. So for the moment, I think that the EU as such will continue to have relatively little impact on Russian thinking. Because, let's be honest, it's a great deal easier for them that way. And if we've come to the point of irrelevance, that seems to be a suitable point at which to end this podcast. Thank you, as ever, for listening to my ruminations. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ прав.